You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. We know the apostles were the main spokespersons for the church and the centerpiece in terms of the apostolic witness of the resurrection. But scripture is clear that all disciples, all Christians, not just the 12, received the Holy Spirit on that day. In fact, I'll bring in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. Some of you know this. It's a great cross-reference. It says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Have you ever felt inadequate? In an age where we're constantly being told to trust the experts or to leave it to a professional, it's easy to feel unqualified or ill-equipped for a lot of things. However, Pastor Tom teaches us in today's message that if you're a Christian, then you are equipped with the Holy Spirit. In the body of Christ, there's not a special group of people that possess access to God, but every disciple of Christ has been given the Holy Spirit to empower them for the work of ministry. Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of Acts chapter 2 as he continues his message, Endowed with Power from on High. We are in the New Covenant, not the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is not as good as the New Covenant. That's why God replaced it. The New Covenant, the book of Hebrews says, is a better covenant. God says that. You have a better deal than they had in the Old Testament. You have a better management. You have a better arrangement. You're in a better dispensation. And the Holy Spirit is part of that dispensation. Remember that Acts chapter 2 happens right after Jesus ascended to heaven, right? Remember that? John 7, 39 says the Holy Spirit could not be given until Jesus was glorified. These are historical events. Jesus isn't coming back down to earth to be born of a baby all over again. That's been done. That's been accomplished. Jesus is not going to go back to the cross to die a second time. That's been done. That's over with. Jesus doesn't have to crawl back into a tomb in order to be resurrected from the dead again, in order to prove that that happened. That's already been done. The Holy Spirit does not have to come again. He's already come. First, Christ was glorified. Then the Spirit came. This is an historical book, and this is an historical happening. To put it succinctly, no one can imitate the day of Pentecost today. How would they do that? It's like repeating the death of Jesus. The whole point of Acts 2 is not to reproduce it today, but to understand it. We don't reproduce the death of Jesus here. That's Catholicism, right? We celebrate something that happened back then because it's historical, done, and accomplished. Same thing with the Holy Spirit. When you understand Pentecost, you understand it doesn't need repeating. Beloved, the Holy Spirit has come in power just like Jesus promised that he would, and we're in a new age, and we live and minister in a new age, and so that is the when, okay? When, now the where. The where of the Spirit's coming. Verse 1, again, I know, two sermons and we're still in verse 1, but it does build, it does get going. Verse 1 says they were all together in one place. We know that they were in Jerusalem. The exact location, we're not told. It doesn't seem to matter. Some have thought this was this house, as it's called house, was actually the temple in Jerusalem. But Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, never calls the Jerusalem temple a house. Rather, in uh, chapter 3 and verse 1, he uh, uses another term, yeron, for temple. So most probably they were meeting together in the upper room. 
in Jerusalem, mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 13, maybe another large house in Jerusalem, somewhere in the middle of the town. Remember, these big cities in, in those days were not big in, in comparison to what we think about, but for an ancient city, it was large. Whatever this home was, it was large enough to hold the 120 of those faithful disciples mentioned at the end of chapter 1. Now, please remember it was Jesus' plan, according to chapter 1 and verse 8, for the witness of his chosen apostles to begin in the city of Jerusalem. In the entire world, there was one place Jesus wanted his witness to begin, and that was in this city. That's also outside of that city, right outside of the city, outside of the gate, where he was killed and where he was raised from the dead, right? So the Holy Spirit would descend to empower the witness of the resurrection of Christ right where the events happened. And that was important to God because it was truth. It was fact. It could be confirmed. And that was important to God. You see, Jerusalem, by the way, at the time of Pentecost was also chosen this place this time because Christ knew that travelers from all over the world, Jews from all over the diaspora scattered throughout all of the nations that were there since they were ripped off the land back in the Old Testament times, had been there many, many generations now. They still had a dedication to come back to the Holy Land, to come back to the land of Israel, even though under Roman control. And they would come and they would celebrate together. They spoke different languages, but they would celebrate this Feast of Weeks together as part of their Jewish heritage, part of their thought process that they were still obeying God. And so Jesus knew that would happen. And he knew then that the gospel could be preached in all of their languages once they arrived. It would be a great first start to the gospel. You couldn't have a better arrangement on earth than that. So if you think about it, if someone tried to reproduce Pentecost today, they first of all need to be Jewish. They need to be living in Jerusalem or at least traveling there, celebrating Pentecost with Jews who are coming from all over the world there. Then they'd have to have the Holy Spirit come down upon them and make all of these signs, and they'd have to be living in the first century, and that's the kicker. The church was not launched in the United States of America. I mean, I love my country. God bless America and all of that. But it wasn't started here. And it was not started in Rome. Sorry for all of you with Catholic background. It is the church of Jesus. And Jesus is the Jewish Savior King. That's what Messiah means, Savior King. And so the church and the message of the King and the proclamation of the King's message started and had to start in Jerusalem. Pretty important city, isn't it? Still in the news. Third, the who. Who was gathered on the day of Pentecost? Again, verse 1, it says, they were all together in one place. Verse 4 also points out that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So the question is, who are the all? Well, some interpreters limit the all to all the apostles. The apostles are the last group that is mentioned in chapter 1, verse 25, and we concede that the apostles have a prominent role in the church, and they're even prominent in the passage. It may even be that the primary speakers with the tongues that day that we're going to read about uh, upcoming here were the apostles, since it is claimed that all of them are Galileans. And we know the apostles were the main spokespersons for the church and the centerpiece in terms of the apostolic witness of the resurrection. But Scripture is clear that all disciples, all Christians, not just the 12 received 
the Holy Spirit on that day. In fact, I'll bring in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. Some of you know this. It's a great cross-reference. It says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. You have to have the Spirit of Christ in you even to be belonging to Christ. In fact, some people, they go to church, they belong to church, but they don't belong to Christ yet because they don't have the Spirit of Christ inside of them. You can't even be a Christian if you don't have the Holy Spirit. You don't even belong to him. You're void of the Spirit, you're void of Christ, you're void of salvation. You might notice later in chapter 2, in in verses 38 and 39, Peter says that the promise, that is the Holy Spirit, is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. Everybody, Peter says, gets the Spirit, if you believe. If you don't believe, you don't. And if you notice that since chapter 2 and verse 1 is simply a continuation of the narrative from chapter 1, we always make the point that these chapter divisions are not inspired. These chapter divisions were not even there when they wrote this. This came along centuries later. They're helpful to us, but don't read them like, well, chapter 2, you know, that's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's a continuative narrative, and you need to read it that way. You may notice as you look back, the pronoun they that's used throughout the passage, verse 23, verse 24, verse 26 in chapter 1, consistently refers to the entire assembly. And furthermore, this was a feast of Pentecost, so all the people would have been feasting and gathered together to celebrate. And so the Holy Spirit's presence and the Holy Spirit's power was meant for all believers, not just the apostles. That means we're probably still talking about that full group of 120 disciples mentioned in chapter 1, verse 15, the men and, yes, the women, all gathered together. And so that's the when, the where, and the who of this passage. Now we come to the main event, and we'll carry this into the next time that we're talking as well, and that is the what. Well, this is amazing. There's a lot that happened on the day of Pentecost. It takes a while to unpack it. I want you to get ready for a rush. I'm probably going to start talking faster, because there's actually a lot that happened on the day of Pentecost. When you read the New Testament, and you understand the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, pneumatology, and you look back, you realize that that though it doesn't say this in Acts chapter 2, with the coming of the Spirit, there are a number of ministries and works and happenings of the Spirit that happened exactly at this moment and happen here. The baptism with the Holy Spirit for certain, the fullness of the Holy Spirit is actually mentioned in verse 4, the leading of the Spirit, places like Galatians and Romans 8 will mention, the anointing of the Spirit that 1 John 2 mentions, the sealing of the Spirit that Ephesians 1 mentions, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, our walking in the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5, sanctification by the Spirit, gifting by the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, all of these things there. But no, it doesn't say anything at all about being slain in the Holy Spirit or rolling around on the ground because of the Holy Spirit or barking with a language like that of the Holy Spirit. But from Acts 2 on, we read and see the Holy Spirit everywhere. He becomes the energizing force. He becomes the administrator. He becomes the teacher. He becomes the comforter. He becomes Christ with them, their discipler, their discipler. Brothers and sisters, you are being discipled. The Holy Spirit is discipling you. So this will take time to develop because there's a lot of stuff that's happened here. And I want to get to at least, you know, a good portion of it, but, but not all of it today. The way to really begin to grasp what happened on the day of Pentecost, at Pentecost, is to focus on these miraculous signs that happened there that God gave on that day. Did you notice them? Was your eye drawn to them? Aren't they intriguing? Though the Holy Spirit's work is invisible and it's mysterious, 
Fortunately for us, God decided, since we can't understand those things, he would give an audio-visual event. An audio-visual event. For all of you that like audio-visual events, here it is. The signs. The first sign, and we'll go through these signs. The first sign, or the image of the Holy Spirit's arrival in verse 2, was the noise. The noise. Verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise. Like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. What filled the whole house? The noise. The adverb suddenly, a phone, is also used to describe the earthquake that hit near Paul and Silas when they were in prison in Acts chapter 16. Earthquake just starts. And it just goes and it's sudden. That shows that the coming of the Holy Spirit was fast, quick, and a surprise. They knew, of course, that Jesus Christ was going to send the helper. They believed him, but they didn't have the book of Acts. They couldn't read what was about to happen to them. They were sitting there, and they were doing whatever they were doing, feasting, talking, who knows? They didn't know the exact time. Kind of like we're told, we don't know when Jesus is going to return. He just could have the rapture right now. Rapture could happen right this second, right? And all these clothes would just drop on the, on the aisles because we'd be gone and out of it. And then you'll know if you're still left behind what happened. You know you were not in Christ because he knows the hearts of all men, right? But here it says all these people, all 120 of them were believers. And they hear this noise and it rushes upon them. He suddenly came. He startled them. It must have been you know, kind of like, wow, what is this? It must have been empowering and exciting. I like surprises, you know, I like those kinds of things. People want to tell me what they're going to give me, you know, for don't tell me, I want the surprise, I want the surprise. Surprises are great. So they're sitting in the house. By the way, they're sitting in the house. Did you read that? So what's the big deal about that? That means that they were probably not praying. Hey, what are you talking about? We sit and pray. Yeah, you sit and pray. I sit and pray. The Jews didn't sit to pray. Typically, the Jews stood to pray or they got down on their knees. They didn't sit to pray. When they were sitting, they were listening and learning and talking. Now, ain't that a kicker? Pentecostals won't like that because they thought that the Holy Spirit came because they were calling down the Spirit from heaven. They weren't even praying. They might have been like, guy might have been biting down on some, you know, clean meat and having lunch. And then, boom, the Spirit came. By the way, Jesus never told them to pray that the Holy Spirit would come down from heaven, at least not beginning of Acts or what we read about at the end of Luke. He said, wait, go to Jerusalem and wait. Now, them be some pretty easy commandments to obey. And he guaranteed, I will send him. You will be clothed. After you're clothed with power, then you'll have something to do. But they didn't have to like fervently pray up a storm so the Holy Spirit finally would say, ah, there's enough prayer, I can come. Please notice, too, that this noise came from heaven. This is significant because Jesus had just ascended where? To heaven. Chapter 1, verse 11. In chapter 2, verse 38, Peter told the Jews exactly this, that Jesus poured out the Spirit from the right hand of the Father in heaven. He went up to heaven, he received the Spirit, he poured out the Holy Spirit, this noise came from heaven. Also, please notice that the noise was a noise like a violent rushing wind. Please note that it does not say there actually was any wind. There might have been, 
But it says it was a noise like a wind. Like, hosper in Greek. It signals that this was not a meteorological event primarily. There was no strange cyclone that hit them that day, no out-of-place wind gust necessarily. If there were, it would have been a violent wind, not just a strong breeze, a violent wind that might have damaged the home or blown people over or furniture over. It was a sound like a violent wind. So this was a supernatural noise event initiated by God from heaven. I don't know if you've ever been in a violent windstorm before, been near a hurricane or a tornado and heard that roar that sounds like a train or something like that, but it is deafening. It is a deafening sound, is it not? I mean, you have to almost yell to hear yourself. And verse 2 says, this noise filled the whole house. That means it was all resonating all around them. They were surrounded by the sound of this gushing wind. It would have drowned out voices. It would have poured out into the streets so that everyone out in the streets would hear this noise as well. It was not a containable noise. A mighty sound. A mighty sound of wind to represent the coming of the mighty Spirit of God. Not a little trickling, not a little refreshing breeze, but full power from on high. And of course, the sound of wind was an appropriate sign for in both the Hebrew language and Koine Greek, the word for spirit and wind, pneuma, are exactly the same. Also, Jesus himself compared the work of the Holy Spirit to wind in John 3, 8, where he said, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. John Walvoord in his work, the Holy Spirit writes... Wind is well suited to be a type or symbol of the Holy Spirit in that the characteristics of wind are similar to those of the Holy Spirit in many respects. The power, invisibleness, immaterial nature, and sovereign purpose of wind in creation have their counterpart in the person and the work of the Spirit. And so this first noise sign was for the sake of the gathered disciples. It confirmed to the believers in the house that, yes, Jesus' promise was met. The Spirit has now mightily come down upon them. After this auditory sign from heaven, there also came a visual sign to confirm the Holy Spirit's arrival. Verse 3 says they saw something also. Look at it. It says, and there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. Tongues as a fire shows once again that this was not literal fire any more than the noise was a literal wind. These flames in the shape of tongues were first one flame, probably somewhere in the center of the room. And then we get this from the Greek verb dia meridza, which means to divide. This tongue came and divided and then went and each tongue divided and landed on top of the heads of the various disciples in the room. It's in the middle voice. So this verb pictures the flames dividing themselves automatically and then just moving and resting upon those that were seated. It's interesting that God would choose fire as the next symbol of the Holy Spirit. Why fire? Some have linked the fire here on the day of Pentecost with John the Baptist's words in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11, which speaks of Jesus, John baptizing with water, but Jesus baptizing his followers or baptizing with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, baptism of fire. But these disciples were not being baptized, which means to immerse and to dunk. The term actually means to immerse. They were not being immersed with fire on the day of Pentecost. The baptism of fire that John the Baptist refers to in Matthew 3 is not a blessing. It's some coming terrifying judgment of fire that will be 
pour it out on unbelievers, on non-Christians, and consume them. If you keep reading in Matthew 3, the context makes that clear. In verse 12, it says, Christ's winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's the baptism of fire. The baptism with the Spirit has to do with blessing upon believers. The baptism with fire immerses unbelievers in the flames of eternal judgment. Jesus will do both of those baptisms, according to John the Baptist. He will be the Savior who blesses, and he will be the judge who brings down fire. So Pentecost is not a baptism with fire. Rather, these tongues of fire on Pentecost rested on each of them. And the next verse is joined to verse 3 by the word and, indicating that as the tongues of fire rested on each one of them, they immediately were filled with the Spirit, and they spoke the words of the Holy Spirit in these other tongues. So the tongues of fire led to the speaking of the tongues of God. That's the connection you're supposed to make. First the fire that cleanses, and then the mouth that speaks, you see. When Scripture speaks of fire in a positive light, and there are some places, it is usually seen as some powerful and purifying element. For example, in Isaiah 6, verses 5 through 7, the prophet Isaiah had his lips cleansed by a burning coal from the altar of God. And then after his lips were cleansed, because he said, I'm a man of unclean lips, he was then told, go ahead and prophesy. I've cleaned your mouth. Now speak. That's what God has to do. He has to clean the mouth, and then we speak. Fire also in the Bible is a symbol of the presence of the holy, the holy presence of God. You remember in Exodus 3, 3, Moses turned aside to see something very strange. And on the mountain, he saw a bush that was burning, but it wasn't consumed. And he never seen anything like that. I've never seen anything like that. And it kept burning and burning, but the bush was never consumed. And when he got near, what did God say to him? Take off the shoes and sandals, whatever they were off of your feet. For the ground you stand on is holy ground. Fire, holiness, purity. Pillar of fire led the Israelites by night, the holy presence of God. Deuteronomy 4.11, the Lord spoke from the midst of the fire. Malachi 3, 2 and 3 calls God a refiner's fire. So the fire was to purify the mouths and to speak powerfully the word of God, this time not in their own language, but in other languages. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. So these are the first two signs, and they were given for the benefit of the disciples. But the third sign, the third sign was given for the benefit of the other Jews who were celebrating the day of Pentecost and gathered in Jerusalem, the unbelieving Jews. This was a sign for unbelievers, this third sign. Verse 4 goes on to point that out. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages as the Holy Spirit was giving them utterance, speaking in tongues. The very mention of the topic brings emotion, frankly, it brings division, but it really shouldn't and it doesn't need to. It may surprise many people to know that through the vast majority of the 2000 years of church history, there was absolutely no debate or confusion about the gift of tongues. Leave it to us moderns to mess it up. Because what the Bible says about tongues here in the book of Acts is not all that difficult to interpret. If it weren't for the controversy, we would just shrug our shoulders. And what is practiced 
and called the gift of tongues in many churches today is not even close to what the scriptures describe here. And we are going to pick up on that and what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit and how we're commanded to be full of the Holy Spirit and how we can be full of the Holy Spirit and how that should drive us and teach us and empower us when we get back to Acts the next time. Let's uh, pray. Father, thank you for your word that instructs us so clearly. Bless the preaching of your word to the hearts of your people and the development of their faith. Bless us as we come to your table and commune with you now. Amen. The things that happen on the day of Pentecost seem to be pretty strange and mysterious. But as Pastor Tom taught us in today's message, everything that happened that day had a purpose. The sound of wind, the tongues of fire, and the speaking in tongues all served a purpose in the work that God wanted to do here on earth. Through His church, God wanted it to be known that He was the one doing the work. We're blessed to be able to share the good news of the gospel with our listeners through the ministry of Discover Hope. If you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus yet, or if you have more questions, we invite you to visit the What Does It Mean to Be a Christian page under the About Us at HopeBible.org. This will provide you with a concise description of why you need Jesus in your life and how you can be free from sin. We'd like to speak and pray with you too, so please give us a call at 443-200-HOPE. Again, that's 443 443- 200 hope when the holy spirit first came upon the church that pentecost day 2000 years ago it was exciting for those who experienced it those events are inspiring for us today but what does it actually mean for us do we still experience the same outpouring of the holy spirit now join pastor tom next time as he teaches us about the work of the holy spirit in the life of a believer after that event on the day of pentecost to listen again to today's message in the book of Acts, visit HopeBibleChurch.org and look under the Sermons tab. Pastor Tom will return soon with another in-depth study of God's Word, so join us again right here on Discover Hope.